welcome back to another episode with your hosts, myself, Megan Gesner. And myself, Harini. Today, Harini will be the one taking over as the main storyteller. We kind of did a joint effort in terms of research. And so we're both going to share our sources at the beginning. And there's not going to be any jibber jabber up front. This is going to be a long (laughs) one. So we're just going to jump right in. So Harini, why don't you go ahead and start with your sources and then I'll give mine and then we'll go into it. Yeah, so I first want to start out and say the whole premise and reason why we wanted to even do this episode is manyfold. But first and foremost, it is February. It is Black History Month. Um, I I know I personally wanted to do, do something. I was initially thinking about doing something to cover um, African-American scientists, mm-hmm. something like that. But then this was actually a very pressing piece of news mm-hmm. that had come up so i wanted to really dive deep and discuss it actually both of us wanted to dive deep and discuss it mm-hmm. but i also want to shout out to a, a specific person that also really like got the gears going for me wanting to put some pen to paper and really do the research okay mm-hmm. this person is Lenizi. Mm-hmm. i want i hope i'm saying that right it's at underscore Lenizi l-y-n-e-e-z-y she has a series she's a wonderful um woman of color african-american woman on instagram this is how i found her she does this series called parking lot parking lot pimpin which is awesome Mm -hmm. so she just like it's just what it sounds like she's Mm -hmm. in the parking lot she's sipping her tea and she's dishing about Mm -hmm. um, a hot topic and in this particular series which i will link in our show notes she's talking about the case of lauren smith fields For those of you who don't know who that is or what the whole case is about, we'll be talking about that today. So that is the case we'll be talking about is Lauren Smith-Fields. So I have a lot of sources and actually some of them, I'm going to be citing them as I talk about them throughout the Mm -hmm. episode, but here are some off the top. There's two New York Times articles by Lola Fadulu, the article by Danielle Cohen from The Cut. Black Victims of Violent Crime Bureau of Justice Stats by Erica Harrell, Female Victims of Violence by the same uh, group, research put together by Shannon Catalano, PhD, Erica Smith, Howard Snyder, PhD, and Michael Rand. Mm-hmm. There's the William & Mary School of Law, Race, Gender, and Social Justice by Michelle S. Jacobs. For the actual story part, I got articles from The Guardian, uh, a few New York Times articles, and then for some of the toxicology portions, I got art- really great articles from GoodRx, actually. They had really great articles mm-hmm. on this, and I think that's about it, I want to say. Okay. And then the other ones yeah. I'll talk about as I go along. Okay. Got it. All right, right on. I'll probably do the same. I'm going to um, cite my sources now, but then I'll you know refer back to them once we get to whenever I chime in. But I got some information from two different NPR articles, both by Rachel Treisman. I pulled from the Connecticut government website for a couple different things, um, one of them being the July Special Session Public Act number 20-1. One of my sources is the Connecticut ACLU, an article from Heavy, two articles from CT Post, Connecticut Post, an article from the Middletown Press, New York Times, and the Connecticut Police Officer Standards and Training Policy for Handling Missing Persons Investigations. Mm, Um, Good ones. Yeah. All right. 
All right. That's a lot of sources and more to come. Okay. Well, let's get this started. And I want to just say off the top, trigger warning in terms of violent language towards certain people, primarily people of color. So just wanted to say that off the top. Just some stats to start out with. Nearly 50% of all homicide victims in the U.S. were African-American and 35% were, male, were female. About 25% of non-fatal violence against blacks involved an offender perceived to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. So those are some quick stats, but what I really want to focus on, as I discussed earlier, is Lauren Smith-Fields, the history of black women and the relationship with the police in general, as well as the relationship with police in the black community in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I want to start first, like historically, the whole narrative around uh, the black community and violence and the government and police and like all of that kind of stuff. Just thinking all the way back, back to slavery, this whole relationship itself was founded in violence. Black Mm -hmm. men and women were killed and mutilated at the will of the slave owner. No repercussions. In addition to all of that, black females were also subject to violent rape and sexual abuse through the slave trade. Ultimately, all of this demeaned black women to be an object, disposable item to be bought, played with, that kind of thing. And it was during this era of slaveholding that black stereotypes came into play, which still come into play even today with Lauren Smith Fields. So black men were seen as violent savages, while black females were seen as lusty, wild, and without morals who needed to be quote-unquote tamed. This language is justified by Christian whites who may have been having moral doubts about holding human beings in captivity, essentially, to assure them that blacks were not human. Mm. Use of such language reassured whites who may have been uncertain about the legitimacy of this. And so this belief was held for 200 years, which, you know, I think we think about that and we're like, yeah, we know, like the Civil War and, and even beyond that, like this has been going on for a while, but 200 years is a long time, long time. Mm-hmm. And through to the end of the Civil War where blacks were emancipated, liberty and equality for all. It was definitely a time where people were quite literally jumping for joy, like things are going to change finally, mm-hmm. like we are free. Although we know historically that wasn't going to be the case. Through the Jim Crow laws of legal segregation, black women continued to be killed and sexually assaulted under a law that provided little to no protection for them and by them. Stereotypes of black women and their quote-unquote loose sexuality was a common theme in race dialogue, and the laws reflected this view, that black women were not civilized and were not civilized enough to be protected under the full U.S. law. So looking more at in terms of like the law and police in the community, blacks are more likely to be questioned on whether they are credible witnesses. Definitely more with women when they report under oath or at a police station, especially when they've been the victim. They have been historically characterized as liars. Black women are believed to be overly aggressive and used used to violence, which is used against them when they report that they're victims, especially of violence by an intimate partner. And jurors are more likely to see black women as mutual combatants rather than a victim, when, especially, mm-hmm. again, when it's a partner situation. So throughout the colonial and slave era, white men created this rhetoric that black women had no control over their libido and were overly sexual, leading white men to wanton pleasure, again, providing white men in that era justification for sexually assaulting women. 
And this was, of course, juxtaposed against the pure feminine, chaste white woman. I kind of discussed this earlier, but black women were not spared from physically demanding work in the fields. Black women did the same work that men did in the field and were subject to the same punishments, whipping, branding, mutilations. Sojourner's Truth had to bear her breast during a speech at the Women's Suffrage Convention in 1851 to silence the people questioning if she was actually a woman. Mm. In Truth's speech, she compared her ability to work with that of any man and thus believed women should have equal rights to any man. White indentured women rarely worked in the fields, but when they did, it was usually for punishment. So again, that juxtaposition. Hmm. The lives of black women are routinely erased by the police. Andrea Ritchie, a lawyer and activist, had worked for 20 years to bring to light the killings, assaults, and rapes committed by police for, against black women and other women of color and the transgender community. However, movements like Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name shine light on the lives lost, but ultimately it's hard to educate the public on the violence against black women because it rarely makes the news. Lack of news coverage on black women was highlighted when former prosecutor and now media personality Nancy Grace began reporting on missing women. All the women Grace reported on were white, which caused a late NPR anchor Gwen Ifill to coin the phrase, quote, missing white woman syndrome, unquote, to discuss the media's exclusive focus on white women. Few mainstream media outlets cared if a black woman was missing or dead, even in comparison to a missing or dead black man. There was no database the authors could access to identify black women killed or brutalized by the police. The project relied on the families of the women to essentially put that database together. And I just want to highlight when this story came to light, I think, Megan, you probably have seen this in your research, too. This is clearly being compared to all of the media coverage that immediately came with Gabby Petito's case. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was really tough to listen to, but there's a point to all this. It relates to the case, so I'm going to start talking about the case now. All right, so let's transition to talk about Lauren Smithfields. On December 12th of this year, 2021, 23-year-old black woman Lauren Smith-Fields was found dead in her apartment in Bridgeport, Connecticut after a bumble date. So we are now, of course, in February. So during this almost two-month time span, Lauren's family has insisted that her case wasn't being taken seriously and that the police had messed up the investigation. The week of January 26th, Lauren's death was ruled as an accidental overdose and I just want everyone to keep this ruling in mind as we discuss the rest of the story. The family has since announced that they plan to sue the city of Bridgeport for being, quote, racially insensitive, unquote, and failing to properly investigate Lauren's death. Lauren's case is far from the first time a black woman's death has failed to receive resources, attention, and public concern generally reserved for white victims. Lauren's family mm. lawyer, Daniel Croslin, has cited the case of Gabby Petito, a white 22-year-old influencer who disappeared and was eventually confirmed to have died during a trip she took with her boyfriend in September. The families of missing black and indigenous women have argued that Petito's case and those of white women like her receive far more media attention than is given to women like Lauren. Lauren's family did an independent autopsy and are awaiting the results of that as we speak. I try to check again just before we record this, it's still not out yet. So we'll keep check checking back for that. 
On the Bridgeport police side, they have opened a criminal investigation to Lauren's death because fentanyl was involved. Mm -hmm. So here's what is known to the public so far regarding the case. The night Lauren died, she met up with a bumble date by the name of a man, Matthew LaFountain or LaFontaine. I don't know how to pronounce Mm -hmm. his name. Mm -hmm. His last name correctly? I've been saying LaFountain, but La Fountain? I mean, who okay. knows? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I wanted to it's, give it a French spin, but I was like, it's not worth it. I mean, it might be, but that's uh, besides the point, you know? <laughs> Anyways, yeah. okay. Let's just do LaFountain. So <laughs> she was found unresponsive in the early morning of December 12th after a 37-year-old white man, LaFountain, called 911. LaFountain spent the night with Lauren as her bumble date and claims that when he woke up that morning... Lauren was lying on her right side, not breathing, with blood dripping from her right nostril. When police and medics arrive, Lauren was lying on her back on the bedroom floor with dried blood in her right nostril. I'm going to like maybe correct myself, potentially. Uh, I know maybe some of our listeners have heard the story, so I'm curious. When I first read this account, and I you know, cross-referenced with a few articles now, it is my understanding that she was unresponsive on her bed. So, but then the reports when the medics come say that she's on the ground. I don't know yeah, I feel like what I recall reading was that he initially like checked in on her at 3 a.m. or something, and she was on the bed. Okay. And then I and then I do feel like when she was like discovered unresponsive, it sounds like she was on the floor. Okay. That's what I recall. Got it. Um, and that was at six. That was a six a.m. time, and that's when he called the police. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my understanding, at least. Okay. Yeah. So Perla Fountain, he arrived at Lauren's apartment at around nine thirty p.m. on December eleventh. The two matched on Bumble three days prior to that. He claims she. As in Lauren, he claims Lauren asked him for $40 to do her nails and told him to meet her at her house with a bottle of tequila. He says they drank tequila, they played games, had food, watched a movie. LaFountain says at one point, Lauren went to the bathroom to throw up. And at another point in the night, she goes outside to get something from her brother and then goes to the bathroom for about 10 to 15 minutes. LaFountain's police report. I'm just going to share like, you know, there's going to be a lot of different versions of yeah. the story that come up. And I, you know, that in itself is a problem. <laughs> just from what I saw, I feel like I read that she only did a phone call with her brother. Really? Rather than, yeah, that's wow. what I remember reading. I'm not sure if the brother actually, like, came to the apart, uh, wherever they were at. But like again, like I don't, I don't know, I don't know which source is correct. But that's what I read. Like right. hit in a that's statement, a he difference. said that like it's a huge difference <laughs> in the story, right? Yeah. That's... But yeah, I'm just wanted to share that. Sure. So okay, I don't know really what is the correct. Yeah, I don't know what's the correct. Uh, I actual don't version. Either, but what? But that's really interesting because I read like a few articles on the story because you know how exactly what you said. Sometimes you get more tidbits of information from other articles so i was like cross-referencing a few articles but i never saw that like they all said that he came so i'm not sure that's um yeah that's a big i mean difference though yeah Yeah. in all fairness to our listeners so that our listeners don't feel confused and feel like Mm. (laughs) i mean sometimes it's a good thing to be ultimately lost and not 
know what's actually this is gonna sound so like warped but not know what's true um because then that way you have a more balanced perspective on like what your opinion is going to be at the end Mm -hmm. that said in all fairness to harini harini actually did like the meat of the research on the story so i would lean more towards what harini's found in her research Mm -hmm. me like i did a cursory kind of catching up on the lord smithfield's case and meaning like you know i brought myself up to speed in terms of like what are the key elements so if mm-hmm. i found something that said that she just got a phone call from her brother i mean in in harini's defense i would not tr- trust me because i think harini did more looking into it so yeah. you probably found more articles that could like uh corroborate her brother actually coming to the to the spot yeah i'll double check myself afterwards but i do remember seeing like at least three articles that stated the same thing so i think that's likely what did happen so for the purposes of the story not to confuse anyone well let's just say that she goes outside to get something from her brother goes to the bathroom for about 10 15 minutes okay fountain's police report says he thought that interaction was odd but didn't feel it was his place to say anything to her since he didn't know her that well he then says Lauren fell asleep during the movie. He carried her to the bed and then s- fell asleep next to her. He says he remembers waking up at 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom, and he says he heard Lauren snoring at that time. Then, at 6.30 a.m., he woke up to find her not breathing. She was pronounced dead at 6.59 a.m., and a medic said she had not been alive for at least an hour. So, uh, yeah, so I just wish there was more detail there because... That to me sounds like he woke up next and next to her and found her not breathing, but I that's just me filling in the, the blanks. Right. Um, LaFountain, mm. who the incident report says was frantic and visibly shaken, was not taken into custody. As of January 26th, he has not been named as a person of interest, nor was he detained at the station for questioning. Lauren's brother mm-hmm. was later told that they didn't bring him in because he seemed like a quote, nice guy. Mm-hmm. here's where things get strange and i want to put a disclaimer out there i don't have any law enforcement background or experience so i could totally be off base here in terms of what is considered procedure however mm. like the little i do know makes me think that maybe things were not done in the right order or with the right like timeliness when police arrive on the scene and confirm that lauren was in fact dead they didn't contact her family nor do they immediately examine the crime scene In fact, no one in Lauren's family was notified of her death. A reporter Mm -hmm. from the Rolling Stone claims that the police spoke to her landlord when they arrived at the scene, but were unable to track down contact information for her family. Lauren's mother, Chantal Fields, says she went to her daughter's apartment a day and a half later after Lauren didn't respond to numerous texts and phone calls. When Chantal Fields goes to her daughter's apartment, she finds a note on the door that says, if you're looking for Lauren, please contact this number. So, of course, Miss Fields calls the number. Miss Fields says, I started panicking, choking back tears. All I could do was just stand there like I was frozen. I could not believe what he was telling me that my baby was gone. Hmm. So, as she's calling the number and she's notified of her daughter's death, the detective assigned to the case said that he would be there in a half an hour. She waits over an hour and no one shows up. So then she calls the number again and was told to stop calling before she was hung up on. So not sure why, but the police didn't do the 
crime scene investigation until later on in the week when the case was reassigned to a different detective. According to Lauren's brother, Lakeem Jetter, he and his family noticed cups of liquor, flipped plates and lube in the apartment, and a blood stain in the middle of the bed, none of mm. which were initially examined as evidence. The family says that they had to beg the detective to collect certain evidence that they found in the apartment. This is from their lawyer. Mm -hmm. the, the detective also told the family not to worry about the man who had been there that night, saying that he was, like I said, a really nice guy. The police didn't do a crime scene investigation until, like I said, later in the week. This is where I want to talk about my citations. So I, what I really wanted to do was look up what happens when there is a delay in investigating a crime scene? Like, does that matter? Like, does the immediacy of that whole experience matter? I mean, the idea is that you just want the evidence to be preserved, right? So I have two sources I'm just going to cite really quickly. So this is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and this is the Crime Scene and Physical Evidence Awareness for Non-Forensic Personnel. And then I have another one that is Crime Scene Investigation, a Guide for Law Enforcement. So from these two, there wasn't anything that talked about like in terms of timeliness, like it's important to do it right away. Although I assume that's what you would like to do, because it is implied that you want to make sure that no one is able to enter the crime scene, except obviously um, necessary personnel. That's part of the investigation. Mm hmm. But clearly that mm -hmm. also didn't happen because Lauren's whole family walked the whole scene. Right? Mm. Before before um, they investigated. Like before it was even, before the crime scene team came into place or forensics Correct. team came in Correct. sort of thing. I mean, okay. as I just described, they walked the whole apartment. They saw all the cups. Yeah. They saw the liquor. They saw whatever, whatever. And they basically right. told them like, can you please bag this as evidence? Like, why is this not done yet? So... That right there right. is like you have people touching her stuff. They're touching the door handle. Like there's a lot of other people's, you know, DNA potentially, their hair shedding now coming into her apartment. So that is not a clean crime scene anymore now that her family has walked it. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So that's why I feel like mm -hmm. there's certain things that just weren't done for whatever reason. Maybe they just mm -hmm. thought it was like an open, open and shut case of her overdosing but of course at that time they did not know that yet because they're still still having to do the right. autopsy so there's just a lot of questions there right so two and a half weeks after the search on december 29th lauren's family was clearing out her apartment when they found a used condom in the trash and an unidentified pill none of which were clearly collected as evidence as part of the crime scene search so just to reiterate this is after the full crime scene investigation they were cleaning the family was cleaning up the apartment and they found these two pieces of potentially critical evidence, a used condom and a pill. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. according to the family's lawyer, no evidence has been submitted to the forensic science lab. From all of mm. that that just happened, the families sue the city for failing to properly investigate Lauren's death, which has happened. It's happening. On mm -hmm. January 21st, the Smithfields family lawyer, Darnell Croslin, issued a notice of claim, which announced that the family intends to sue the entire Bridgeport Police Department for its poor handling of the case. They believe, again, like I said, the department was racially insensitive and did not take her death seriously. The notice details a number of concerning mm -hmm. missteps in the investigation, including the fact that obvious evidence was not gathered by police and the officers have been reluctant to formally interview LaFountain or name him as a person of interest. 
On top of that, the family lawyer alleged that Kevin Cronin, the first detective assigned to the case, had, quote, some connection with LaFountain and is currently under investigation by the city's internal affairs department. So if you guys remember, I talked Mm -hmm. about this. There was some delay because they had to reassign the detective. So that was the whole situation. So he's current. That person is currently being investigated. Mm-hmm. In interviews, Crossan also stressed that deaths and disappearances of white women are taken more seriously than those of black women. When a white woman goes missing, he told Rolling Stone, the world drops everything. We're done with this valuation. Lauren's mm-hmm. family held a march on January 23rd, which would have been her 24th birthday, calling for justice and answers about her death from the police department. Meanwhile, as this is going on, the Connecticut medical examiner rules Lauren's death as an accident. The next day, on January 24th, Lauren's autopsy results come back from the chief state medical examiner, concluding that she died of, quote, acute intoxication due to the combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydroxyzine, and alcohol. Okay, so I want to pause mm-hmm. from the story real quick to talk about these four drugs, and I'm including alcohol as a drug in this mm-hmm. case. Kind of went down mm-hmm. an internet pharmacology spiral here have working knowledge of these four drugs and roughly like their combined use is a big no-no but i wanted to learn a little bit more so first off what are these four drugs so fentanyl we kind of talked about this in a previous episode it is a synthetic opioid pain reliever but fentanyl is 80 to 100 times more potent than natural opioids so like your morphine or codeine then you have promethazine Mm-hmm. which is essentially an antihistamine and also used for anti-nausea. So think Benadryl, but stronger since it is prescription. It's mainly used for anti-nausea, but it does cause drowsiness and has sedative effects like Benadryl. So if you're going to look up promethazine, it will say that it is a sedative or in mm-hmm. the sedative class. Then you have hydroxyzine. This is another prescription antihistamine sedative very much used for more like allergic reactions and itching and hives, that kind of thing. But it does cause a lot of drowsiness as well. So what do all three of these drugs have in common? They are all what you would say contraindicated, meaning it's absolutely not, you're not allowed to take these drugs with alcohol, which they did. They Mm -hmm. were drinking tequila. Again, we have no context mm-hmm. or any knowledge of mm-hmm. how those drugs entered her body. Did she take them willingly? Was she drugged? We have no idea. That's just what was in her body from the autopsy results. Mm-hmm. And just like in a general sense, I think that's kind of a random combination of drugs to take. Because I'm just trying mm. to think from maybe besides the, the fentanyl and the alcohol. Like... um yeah right like i i'm trying to think from like a different perspective like are those four combos do do they produce a good high like does it feel good i can't really i can't say like they do to be honest so that's why it's a little strange to me so what i thought was really interesting when i was doing my research on hydroxyzine there was a strong do not mix with alcohol label to Mm. it Mm -hmm. and I, like in general, I was like, yeah, that that makes sense. But I didn't realize like how strong it was not recommended. Like, absolutely, do not drink alcohol with this drug. And when I looked further into it, this hydroxyzine, like back back in the day, was actually used for alcohol withdrawal symptoms, which I thought was like so bizarre. Um, just given mm-hmm. like now that it's like contraindicated, but essentially, it has n- no use in alcohol withdrawal symptoms. 
but they also realize it's not good to drink it with alcohol because it is a depressant it's a sedative and then alcohol is also depressant Mm -hmm. it puts you at risk for like respiratory distress and eventually death if you take too much so that was a lot of jargon but anyways okay so back to the back to lauren her death was ruled an accident but because fentanyl was involved bridgeport police opened a formal criminal investigation with the narcotics department with the help of the dea The family Mm -hmm. continued to speak out and say they, as in the police, have failed to investigate this matter, and they refused to view the last person Lauren Smith-Fields was with before she died as a person of interest. Going back to what the, I I think he's one of the police officers part of the investigation who basically told the family, was like, oh yeah, like, LaFontaine was a great guy, like, nothing to worry about, right? He made that comment. Mm -hmm. Lauren's brother, Lakeem Jetter, he comments on that. He was like, he felt so strange when that detective said that to him. He was like, it was almost like he was sticking up for him. And it seemed weird mm. to hear that from a detective. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on January 31st, Bridgeport mayor, Joseph Gannon said that two detectives involved in the case have been placed on administrative leave and are being investigated by the Bridgeport police department's internal affairs office. Crossland spoke out mm-hmm. that the toxicology report makes Lauren's death look even more like a murder. And mm. says that the family is still waiting for the results of an independent autopsy. Mm. Crossland says, quote, I've never seen a medical examiner conclude a mix of drugs was an accident without knowing who provided the drugs or how it was ingested. Mm. What's stranger is that Lauren's family is firm that their daughter did not use drugs. So this was strange behavior or at least a shock when they got the toxicology results back. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, like, <laughs> obviously... I know I don't tell my parents everything if, if I'm taking mm-hmm. drugs or not taking drugs or whatever. So that is always yeah. in the realm of possibility that, you know, she may have been taking drugs and her, her family just didn't know that about her. Or they right, can be totally right. right. And that's just not her behavior. She was not, she did not willingly take those drugs. So it's right, just, right. we just don't have enough evidence to say either yeah. way. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I okay. honestly thought the same thing because I... I've read that too in terms of what the family was saying and I completely understand the sentiment because they've just lost someone so unexpectedly that yes. it nothing makes sense nothing in how this investigation has proceeded has made sense her passing in this way makes no sense to them and I totally mm-hmm. understand that but mm-hmm. when I thought about the the sentiment of like she never had this history of drug use and in my head i'm mm-hmm. like which what 20 something young 20 something yeah. hasn't explored or experimented and i'm not saying that if you if you haven't done that in your 20s then you're weird no like that's fine <laughs> if you haven't explored experiment that's that's totally fine but i'm just saying that and i believe she was an athlete too right like listen yeah, i she was. <laughs> i went to college for athletics and was an ncaa <laughs> athlete athletes use drugs i'm gonna say that like no it's a thing and i'm yeah. i'm just saying that in terms of being totally balanced in this regard in terms of yep. drug yep. use specifically so totally. um that is all to say i i understand where they're coming from but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people um you know either she did or she didn't sort of thing and that's that's right. really tough to speculate around yeah totally appreciate that yeah so that being said it is also not unheard of to be drugs on a date, especially a date that has been set through a dating app. 
So Nancy Jo Sales writes in the Guardian article the following. She says, there's unfortunately many stories of people being slipped drugs by their dating site matches going back years. It's just that this dangerous phenomenon has not made its way into the broader narrative of online dating culture until quite recently. For example, just last week, a 43-year-old man in Perth, Australia, was charged with drugging and raping two women in their 20s he met on a sugar daddy dating site, allegedly putting Mm -hmm, ketamine mm -hmm. in their drinks before sexually assaulting Mm -hmm. him. In 2019, a Calgary anesthesiologist, Barry Wallach, was convicted of raping a woman he met on Bumble who suspected she had been drugged because she felt woozy after having had dinner with him. Wallach was later convicted of rape, though the judge ruled that there was insufficient evidence to say that he had also drugged the victim. And of course, Wallach denied both accusations. In 2021, a woman in British Columbia reported feeling so nauseous after a Tinder date that she went to a hospital where she was given a drug test that showed MDMA and meth in her system, substances she had not knowingly ingested. That one really scared the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. So it is absolutely in the realm of possibility that Lauren's Bumble date, Matthew LaFontaine, drugged her, had sex with her. I'm thinking of the used condom in the trash. And then she died due to an OD on the fentanyl itself or due to a noxious Mm -hmm. mixture of the four. Or he totally didn't do any of that. We don't know. (laughs) Right, right, right. So if you don't mind me going in real quick, and I realize we can... I can like extrapolate further on this when we do our our analysis or when we like round it out at the end. Mm. But when I first heard the story, I'll admittedly say I didn't, and I still am hesitant to see this as a story about race. And it is ultimately it is based on how it is proceeding with the media. But I mean more from, from a perspective of, did these cops intentionally were they intentionally uh negligent in their investigation because she is a black woman mm-hmm. we do not know i know that the family's family and the lawyer is you know expressing it that way but from this is what i've learned working with legal counsel at UC San Diego. So people who are well-versed in free speech and versus hate crime and things like that. I'll use that as a, as a juxtaposition, as an example, but understand that hate crimes are really, really hard to identify because it all comes down to intent. So how do you prove intent unless someone explicitly was like, yes, I did X, Y, Z because I had the intention of causing harm to this person because their race creed, blah, 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 blah. So these cops, which I will actually name because I think this will come into play later, Officer Angel Llanos and Officer Kevin Cronin. There were two detectives on the case. Mm -hmm. They've since been dismissed. But it is technically legally impossible to know if they were negligent towards her case because she is black. Um, And that is where I stand on this. However... Mm when it becomes suspect is that there also happened to be another black woman who died on the same exact weekend. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you're going to talk about this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Who they were the same detectives on this case. It just so happened. And that was Brenda Lee Rawls, 53 year old Mm -hmm. black woman who also went to a male colleagues place and ended up dying Mm -hmm. Um, her autopsy has not come back yet so we do not know the cause of death 
But they also did the same thing with her case, which was not doing the right procedure in mm-hmm. in telling the family of her death. So that's where it's like, okay, if we could look into a history of their conduct, yeah. then maybe we could paint a full picture. But right now, yeah. I'm staying very middle of the fence. I don't know if it's about race. Anyway, going into how I, uh, that's how I felt in terms of the racial part. But what I really feel is the big, big thing of the story that I think people are missing or the media is missing is how crazy dating apps have become. And that you, I'm, you know, this is not like a fear tactic. I'm not trying to be a fear monger or whatever. But yeah, it's, I feel like there is a common thing of people being drugged without them knowing. Like that is a thing. When they go on these dates with strangers, and that is just, even if you go on a date with someone not through a dating app, that could happen. You mm-hmm. could go to a bar, not even on a date, and that could happen. Yeah. So it all just comes down to, like, being vigilant, ultimately. I'm just saying that because whether she willingly took these drugs in an agreement during their date, consensual agreement of, oh, yeah, like, I would want to do these particular drugs, mm-hmm. then... That could be a possibility. But then there's also the possibility of like, he very much could have slipped whatever into her tequila or something. And Mm -hmm. we won't know (laughs) until the investigation proceeds. When I, when you first told me about the story and I did the most, the simplest cursory search on it. Like I remember I was texting you literally from the Mm -hmm. toilet and remember i texted you something like yeah. oh i didn't know about this happening yeah. but i didn't even read the rest of the article i already know it's fentanyl poisoning do you remember me texting wow. you that yeah, I remember and you. what i mean by that is that i just read like a headline and i was like there's been an uptick of fentanyl poisonings as we talked about in a previous yep. you know episode mm-hmm. and east coast has a major opioid epidemic and mm-hmm. i was like it's it's so likely any any story that I that reads unexpected death of like a young person, mm-hmm. I'm going to automatically be like, it's fentanyl. It's fentanyl, True. whether it was yeah, intentional not, or guess. not. And lo and behold, I'm not saying that like I'm <laughs> smug, but I was just like, it's almost predictable, you know, at this yeah, point, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, totally. No. Yeah. OK, sorry. I, I went on a that. long one there. Those comments. No, no, no. And I think to. I think you bring up a good point about is this really about race or not? Because I know that's the that's what they're going after in terms of why they're suing them. I think what you can say is they are maybe being negligent in proper procedures or there are missteps in the investigation or failure to investigate, which I know is part of what why they're suing them. I think that's that is viable as a reason i i think you're right it's that's intent to prove and you it's hard to prove that yeah it's it's near impossible um to prove intent unless they they admit guilt you you know (laughs) yeah exactly right and that said i want to go back to it you know the possibility around them you know fucking up procedure um they absolutely did and this is you know the um governor sorry not governor blood the the mayor mayor of bridgeport connecticut yeah mayor ganim he said that in like an npr article that like they totally did not do the right procedure but then looking at you know what you talked about in terms of the crime scene investigation procedures 
and I have the missing person investigations, like I'm going to read you mm-hmm. part of, you know, what's uh, what's outlined in their policy. And in my head, I'm like, you can without a doubt, pr- like for sure, like what is fact is that they did not go about this in the right way, just in terms yeah. of procedure. So that is something mm-hmm. that we can be factually accurate about and yeah. no um so yeah. i mean for listeners like i i was reading this and being like okay yeah like they definitely didn't do <laughs> what they were supposed to do and so this this document for missing persons report which <sighs> i guess in this case she wouldn't have fallen into a missing persons category because at this point her body's already been discovered but i can't imagine the policies any different from crime scene because this is what it says this is the section five police slash responsibility section and it says this is the first part determination of missing person case and sensitivity to the reporting party officers dispatchers or other designated personnel who take the initial call by telephone in person or by electronic media shall determine if the call is a missing person case according to the definition of a missing person and then like you can find the definition uh, up in the preface but then after that it is like it is the duty of all law enforcement agencies to immediately assist any Mm. person who is attempting to make a report of a missing person or runaway and a report shall be accepted regardless of the jurisdiction and then it continues when dealing with missing person or adult missing persons uh, jurisdictional issues it is not uncommon for multiple agencies to be involved in the same case it is essential that these agencies work closely together in order to enhance and not impede the investigation of the case the policy requires that the law enforcement unit taking the initial missing person or adult missing person report promptly notify and send copies of the mm-hmm. report to the law enforcement unit that has jurisdiction over the missing person or adult missing person's resident address so Mm-hmm. These were steps that I cannot imagine are any different once a body has been discovered. You know what right, I mean? Because right, I feel right. like when a body has discovered, you have even more urgency yeah. to let next of kin know. So final part. Okay, I think I think like you get the idea. Those steps are clearly outlined. And I feel like I might have said this before, but like this, this policy was put in place or... or updated slash formalized back in 2012 sort of thing so this is not a new thing this is something that was very much in place but yeah one real quick point that i'll address before jumping back to the story i didn't want to say it then because i don't want to break the flow of what actually happened but um to your point megan the whole idea of you must notify next of kin as soon as possible and i'm assuming that you will you have to put in the effort to find them you know if you can't find the contact one way you try another way can't find that way you try another way you keep trying leaving a note on a door might be one way but i'm just like she like just think about that her mom had to find out through a note on a door that her daughter was dead like that's just yeah through her through her landlord right it was the landlord or something that put the note on the door yeah through her landlord and the thing is um i don't i'm not super familiar with every single tenant lease in the country obviously right but right i know because i just signed a lease that you Mm -hmm. have to at least put 
someone else's name on there so in case like you right. are not present or some they're trying to get a hold of you they have another person that they can call that you are either related right. to or that you're close with that they that way they can get a hold of you through that other person and i know right. I, I usually put a family member um or you put a close yeah. friend i have my dad so yeah you must have some way to contact them through your landlord at the minimum maybe that's not the case maybe that's why they weren't able to but i just felt like right. There wasn't enough effort put in to actually find that next of kin. And yeah. I don't know if the police are the ones that put the note um, on the door or if it was the landlord. That was not mm-hmm. clear to me in the, the articles that I read. But mm. either way, I just think it's not a great method. Anyways, yeah. that was just what I wanted to say. So coming back to the whole article that I talked about getting drugs through these dating apps. And again, like we, like Megan said, it doesn't have to be through dating apps. Mm-hmm. But these were just examples where it can happen on a dating app just because in mm-hmm. this context, she was on a Bumble date. Anyways, mm-hmm. he may not have done any of that. He may not have drugged her. He may not have had anything to do with this. Fine. Mm-hmm. Point is, you still have to investigate him. It's mm-hmm. crystal yeah. clear yeah. that he is a person of interest just by the sheer fact that he was with her at the time of death and the hours leading up to her death. He may not have had anything to do with it, but you must right. still do the due diligence of investigating him to rule him out. And they have not right. done that. Why not? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And based on the information we have by ways of news report, it doesn't seem like the Bridgeport police even questioned him beyond asking, so what happened that night, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I am actually towards the end here, and then we can kind mm-hmm. of chat back and forth. But I really want to discuss, or I want to end with a article that I read from BuzzFeed. They actually put together a really great article with great stats about the Bridgeport police community. I don't know if, Megan, you came across this particular article in your research, but... The title is called Black Officers Have Tried to Sound the Alarm on the Police Department Overseeing Lauren Smithfield's Case for Years. And this is by a whole group of people, Kavita Serana, Caroline O'Donovan, Stephanie K. Bayer, and Andrea Click. I wanted to rephrase this article as much as possible, but they honestly have such great content. So I am going to just read off some certain paragraphs for you guys. because I think it's really important for you guys to all listen to this. Okay. Since 2017, at least 14 people have filed complaints or lawsuits accusing the Bridgeport Police Department of civil rights violations, including excessive force and racial discrimination. Black officers, including two black captains who filed lawsuits, sparked an independent probe, have accused the department of a racist and hostile work environment. So those are people Mm -hmm. who are within the police department, Mm -hmm. um, pointing Mm -hmm. fingers at their own people, not pointing fingers, but, you know, reporting that. Right. A former captain resigned in 2018 after texts emerged in which he called an annual Juneteenth celebration an N-word parade. Mm. Allegations of police brutality have cost the city millions of dollars in the last two years, according to city council member Maria Pereira, who represents the district where the two women died. So the two women meaning Brenda Lee Rawls. Okay. So the online pressure reverberated back to Bridgeport where two detectives were suspended on on Sunday and a second family came forward with similar complaints. So the family of Brenda Mm -hmm. Rawls, a 53-year-old black woman, so they had to start their own investigation to locate her body. She died on December 12th, the same day as Lauren. Mm. Connecticut is among the nation's wealthiest states and one of its most segregated. In Mm. Bridgeport, the police force is 54% 54 white compared to 20% of the residents. 
Only one detective is black and 80% of police leaders are white. None of the Mm -hmm. seven leadership positions within the police department are held by black officers. Mm -hmm. In recent years, complaints from black officers have offered a window into the department's internal culture, accusing top leaders of racist conduct and a disparate treatment in lawsuits and in the press. Mm-hmm. In August 2018, Captain Mark Strobel, a top aide to the police chief with more than two decades at the agency, stepped down after complaints of racist texts surfaced. Mm-hmm. In one text, later published in court documents, he referred to a local Juneteenth celebration as an N-word parade. He, in another, mm-hmm. he said that he asked a black captain who was in the running to become police chief, Roderick Porter, if seeing the film Planet of the Apes made him homesick. Mm-hmm. He also called African-Americans a cancer in text and said he hoped for a race war. Hmm. Stroll himself later argued in a suit that his comments were part of a widespread culture in the agency perpetuated by the former chief, whom he accused of regularly using racial slurs, talking about genocidal fantasies in reference to members of the black race and being drunk at work. Is this the former chief of all Connecticut police or chief of specifically bridgeport i believe bridgeport okay okay but i can double check that yeah i i mean Um, that's actually that's a moot point because i actually have an article on the former police chief of bridgeport that would tie in nicely to what you've been saying okay Uh, Okay, but continue I'll, i'll jump in in a little bit so that chief Armando Perez resigned in 2020 and went to prison for obtaining his position through an exam rigging scheme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yep. My gosh. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was going to. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So since then, about a dozen black officers have filed internal complaints about lack of training and opportunities for promotion, disparate discipline, a hostile work environment, and retaliation for speaking up, said David, David Polite, the president of the Guardians, an organization for officers who are people of color. Yeah, so essentially that is a good snapshot into mm-hmm. some stats and just what is going on internally in Connecticut and Bridgeport specifically by the numbers. It's pretty um pretty horrible. <laughs> I can um this is where like I'll add to the snapshot. Sure, so I did um you know, you you covered what the culture is like in terms of racial makeup of the force in and of itself and the community versus the police force. I will add to the snapshot just in terms of abuse of power sort of thing. So you already mentioned the former police chief being arrested on fraud. He was put into that position through like cheating on an exam or whatever, but he was helped by a higher up official. Yeah. Uh, he was helped by then acting personnel director, David Dunn for manipulating the police chief examination and basically just getting him to the top in an unfair way. That said, what I wanted to talk about is with this is what I got from the ACLU article with a lot of police departments and this is nationwide. So how it works in terms of checks and balances, you have your department, police department or law enforcement, right? 
mm-hmm. and they typically will have a police commission. And the purpose of a police commission is to monitor and ensure that, you know, nothing is being overlooked in in terms of, um, you know, following proper procedures and things like that within the, excuse me, within the department itself. The issue with police commissions, though, is that police commissions are typically made up of police personnel and higher authorities of the law enforcement agency. And so you can see how that makes for a very slippery slope of abuse of power because it's police doing oversight for police. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Okay. So what, so then what ends up happening is, so you'll, then you'll have, you'll have the law enforcement agency, you'll have the police commission overlooking it, but in order to check the power of the commission, you then have a community review board. Um, And I'll just say CRB moving forward for community review board. And what a CRB is, is, typically a board of people from the community civilians non-police personnel that then can depending on the powers that they're given by the community slash elected officials or what have you and the amount of funding that the crb gets they can subpoena parts of the law enforcement and witnesses if they feel like things have gone wrong with certain investigations or if they think that there's been an abuse of power. So you have these three entities at play, the law enforcement agency, the police commission, and then the community review board. For context within Bridgeport, which is part of Fairfield County, Connecticut, Fairfield County does not have a community review board. They only have a police commission. And for the history of Connecticut as a whole, Connecticut as a whole has struggled for a long time for creating community review boards in general. Um, I know that New Haven has one. New Haven is the county next door to Fairfield. But Fairfield, I think only in the last two years have they been pushing for a community review board. So I'm just bringing that up to say that I think there is a trend for, I want to use the term abuse of power, but there's definitely a trend that I feel is police trying to protect themselves. That's what I'm trying to get at there. And so this is something on a more lighthearted note, but I learned that the instigation for Fairfield County, for people pushing for a community review board of law enforcement there is because there was one guy who was pulled over by police and he was fined $300 for distracted driving because the Mm -hmm. police thought that he was talking on his phone while he was driving. But actually, he was eating a McDonald's hash brown and he was fucking (laughs) pissed about it and he had to go to court and like plead not guilty to like remove this fine. And ever since that day... This this civilian was like, we need a community review board <laughs> because that cannot fly. Um, but they've yeah. not they have since not approved it. Fairfield County what? has been fighting for it. And so I, I don't know like where it stands now. And then and for further context, I think in 2020 or 2021, someone fact checked me, but they had a July special session voting for this what's called public act number 20-1 this public act 20-1 it's 
it's subtitled as an act concerning police accountability. So a lot of the language in this particular act is just whoever pushed this bill through wants Mm -hmm. to enhance police accountability to be totally fair and unbiased in this and totally transparent. I, I did not read all this language. It is a long ass bill. If you've read Senate bills or whatever, that shit's so dry. And that's why we end up getting stuck with some bills or lost some time because we as regular people are too lazy to fucking read it like I am. So, <laughs> but what I know is that one section of this act called for the creation of a community review board and i think this was this was for the state of connecticut in and of itself but saying like all counties need to officialize a community review board for all law enforcement certain counties have already done that on their own sort of thing but this is calling for all law enforcement institutions to take this on and i from what i read apparently a lot of police from specifically fairfield connecticut law enforcement or whatever they were like picketing um against it or something and again to in all fairness there i did not read all the language i'm sure there might have been other stuff in there that was you know maybe why they were picketing but i just it is notable that there was also a community review board revision or whatever in here that you know if if this didn't go through mm-hmm. they wouldn't have to do it so yeah that's yeah. just um like a political snapshot of right right this community yeah that's so interesting that's all i had i just wanted to wrap up this episode um on some good notes about lauren mm-hmm. so i already said she was a 23 year old almost 24 year old young woman who loved to work out she loved going to the gym she loved getting her nails done at the local salon with her mom and Mm. she was in school with aspiring goals to become a physical therapist so yeah just remembering her memory and she's a real person who was doing real things um Mm. this is an active and ongoing case obviously so we will keep tabs on the story and update you as more info comes in but that is what we wanted to talk about today and hopefully people learn something and are more aware of what's going yeah. on. And I also, um, something that Harini and I have kind of adopted, uh, anytime when fentanyl is brought up, whether someone is mm-hmm. taking a drug, for example, uh, like a recreational drug, like cocaine or yeah, like uh, ecstasy, uh, but typically just as a repeat of information, Typically, uh, fentanyl is found in illicit prescription drugs and cocaine. That seems to be like the Mm -hmm. most common place. And um, heroin is becoming one that's also laced with fentanyl. That is to say, um, I know a large young population because the demographics of people who either die of overdose, uh, a fentanyl overdose, or they don't die, but they overdose, essentially. The demographic is between like 25 to 35 right that's Mm -hmm. that's young folks so i'm imagining it's party drugs or prescription drugs so this is just to remind folks normalize naloxone or narcan Mm -hmm. because if you're really hell-bent on 
doing cocaine over the weekend or what have you, just fucking buy some Narcan at yeah. the per- at the pharmacy. And tying this into Lauren's Lauren's story, like we won't know until the investigation proceeds or what is brought forward, you know, from further autopsy analysis or whatever, if that's even happening, if that fentanyl was in her system intentionally or not. But for those who are intentionally doing drugs, then intentionally buy Narcan too. Yeah. Even if you don't, but if you have friends that do, um, just carry it. May, May come in handy. You could save someone's life normalize it and i will repost i did a little infographic on fentanyl and some truths and not truths about it um including like where you can get it because it is um something that you can get at your local pharmacy you should be able to get it at any of your chains or independent pharmacies um they'll have it behind the counter one thing i did want to say to maybe balance this whole thing out it was actually a point that we chatted about and kind of debated on is whether or not the brother actually came to the apartment and i'm assuming like maybe he was just in the parking lot whatever he came to her residence enough where she was she went outside grabbed something from him came back inside in the interest of being unbiased i when i read that story the first time in what my articles i was like that's interesting to me i would be curious to know what she gave him or what he mm, gave her. Mm, right, right. Because according to LaFountain, she goes outside, gets something from her brother, and goes straight to the bathroom, and is there for 10 to 15 minutes, and then comes out. Yeah. So I don't know what that could be, but that could definitely be an area or time of opportunity where she received drugs, whether or not she knew she was trying to like do drugs, or maybe she was actually right. trying to take prescription meds. Those are two of the same class. They're antihistamines. So mm. maybe she was taking it for allergies. Maybe she was, I don't know, you know, maybe she just genuinely yeah. has allergies and she didn't know it was cut yeah. with fentanyl and then she was drinking on top of that, you know? I can yeah. honestly yeah. see a scenario where she's like, hey, bro, can you can you pick up some allergy meds? I'm on a date. I, I can't leave right mm-hmm. now. And then she grabs right. it from him and then goes and that's that, right? I actually... Yeah, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought that too. Because when you mentioned if the brother did show up or she picked something up from a brother, my mind automatically went like, oh, maybe that's where the antihistamines came into play. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was having like sniffles. Like, yeah. that's really annoying if you have really bad allergies and you're trying to like totally. hang out or have a date. And yep. so it's like, hey, my brother's going to come. I'm going to get allergy medication. Obviously, in this theory, what is kind of being implied is we don't know if those prescription medications were you know if we're if we're implying that maybe fentanyl was in the prescription medications then we're saying okay we don't know if these were bought illicitly right mm-hmm. I, because i imagine that if you're buying something from a pharmacy no. i'm hoping there are standards no, right there would not be happening. anything in that but that so just like just know like that that, that goes down like a, a kind of darker path ultimately if that yeah. theory um you know if that's what we're saying in our theory but i did um i mean that's that's definitely a possibility Another possibility is like the uh, well, actually this this is, does not hold up. Uh, forget the other possibility. But one thing that I have thought about is what we know about fentanyl is that its onset is pretty quick. And so if she had the coroner or medical examiners said she had died an hour before six thirty, remember when the body was found? She, like that mm-hmm. she had been, you know, 
deceased mm-hmm. for about an hour. Mm-hmm. That to me means that what in some time close to five o'clock, five o'clock a.m., that's when the fentanyl maybe got in her body. So that's what I'm wondering, right? Like, isn't that the onset of onset of fentanyl yeah. is like? So that's why I kind of alluded to the fact that she either died from a fentanyl overdose or a mixture of all four things because, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, exactly what you said. It was like a pure fentanyl overdose. It would have happened immediately. So she must have, like, she would have had to waken up, woken up at like 536, taken it, and then subsequently died in her sleep, right? Another thing I was thinking about is maybe she did wake up Mm-hmm. maybe she did have fentanyl and she snorted it because why does she mm. have blood why does she have a bloody nose from just one nostril right that's yeah. another thing that i can't I, I can't wrap my yeah. head around quite well there's just like a lot of things that don't make sense to me just like pharmacologically i'm like um i can understand if for whatever reason whether she did it on purpose or not if you add those four things right. together yeah i'm pretty sure something bad's going to happen but as yeah. you pointed out, the yeah. timing doesn't make sense if it is what they're considering an overdose from po- like fentanyl is included right. in that, unless like it's a very, very small right. amount and it's not enough for her to overdose. Because right. as you said, like not right. every single use of fentanyl results in an overdose or results in death. It just right. depends on the dose. Right. Albeit you don't need a lot to overdose, but it doesn't yeah. always happen. Definitely her right. combination of the four. I can absolutely see that leading to respiratory depression enough to her leading to a coma to death where she's just her breathing yeah. slows so much that she just stops breathing altogether. But what trips me up yeah. is the bleeding from the nostril. Yeah. Yeah. This is where I'm I this is where I'm like, okay, I'm fully genuinely upset that this investigation didn't did not follow procedure at all. Because I'm like, I think for for the sake of the family and everything they could have had an answer so much I think sooner so. right they they wouldn't have to lawyer yeah. up in some ways you know if if it was one of our theories where there's no ill intent it's not necessarily a homicide right it's just something with, went wrong with a prescription medication right i just that's where i'm mad because i'm like i'm not a i'm don't work in forensics but I, i'm like that that blood around the nostril mm-hmm could have been swabbed right away maybe it was like but i don't know right so and i just feel that's where i'm really frustrated because this has now become a whole Mm -hmm. thing because of the negligence Mm -hmm. of two detectives yeah and that sucks for the family like and yeah like that's it's just i I just can't help but juxtapose this as many have already done to gabby petito's case where Hordes of law enforcement were scattered all over from Utah all the way to, mm-hmm. I think they were from Florida. I can't remember now, but they're searching right. everywhere for her to figure out like any scrap or shred of evidence to find this woman. And here, right. you can't even find the family to notify. Right. So I, I, yeah. I like after going through all of this in my stance right now is yes, you cannot prove any intent of racism, but based on the evidence mm-hmm. that I've seen and um, like the stats and the numbers, which you cannot deny those mm-hmm. in Bridgeport and Connecticut as a whole, I do feel like there was an element where they did not take it as seriously as if it were if it were a white woman. I just I just feel mm. that. And I think that's the reason why I've, even the mayor's, you know, 
telling them these people to step down and be investigated. Like there are reasons for what's going on for sure. And it's just unfortunate. It's really, mm-hmm. really unfortunate. And that's why I kind of started the whole episode talking about the whole history behind this and why does this happen? There is an actual mm-hmm. answer. There's a historical answer why women of color or even people of color are are treated in a different tier when it comes to their safety mm-hmm. and their wellness and justice in general. Mm-hmm. So this is just another yeah. unfortunate case where it's just another story that shit isn't going to get done right away as if you were white. Of yeah. course, like we have no further answers than this, but we will, we will keep tabs on it. Yeah. I honestly coming into it, my, my theory of why her case in particular was ignored, but I think, you know, Harina, like what you've said is totally understandable, totally valid. But my brain actually went more towards what is the overdose mm. uh, rate mm. in Connecticut? It's this is to me, this is equally yeah. as messed up. But it was kind of like, a, do they deal with so many overdose cases that they just mm. don't give a fuck? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, for that theory to hold, I have to look up the data. And I'm looking up the data now. And I mean, ultimately, Connecticut as a whole, overdo- overdose rates have increased from 2015 to 2021. But that's comparable yeah. to the whole country. And so it's just kind of one of the... Except it apparently it plummeted <laughs> in 2022. That's really interesting. But here's what's really interesting, uh, in my opinion, is that in terms of ethnic breakdown mm-hmm. of overdoses, between 2015 mm-hmm. and 2021, the number of white people overdosing is 5,532. The number of black people is 898. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge discrepancy. The white pe- folks are overdosing way more than black people so that's where i'm like okay so now we've got some data so maybe like then you can compare like is it is it a race thing or is it just a we've dealt with this type of crime so much but uh you know but if white people are overdosing more than black people then like okay well reason (laughs) yeah yeah. i mean i mean also part of me when i read it that i couldn't shake the feeling that you know they they look at the crime scene and it's almost like open and shut case to them we're like oh some young some young college girl just doesn't know how to handle her drugs and right. she overdosed and died. Like, sucks, right. but that's what right. happened. Like, there's nothing further to investigate. And then they're kind of dragging their feet, investigating right. the crime scene. They let the family walk around, do whatever. And then they start investigating, you right. know? Like, that was that was my first initial yeah. impression. I don't necessarily feel that anymore. Right. But it's still, like, a possibility mm-hmm. that that's what was going through their minds that's not something to speculate on but i'm just sharing my thoughts on that but yeah it's it's i'm just curious to know more what i'm really waiting to know is the independent autopsy results i'd be really curious to to hear back from that and you exactly you read my mind megan i really want to know if they swabbed her nose because if she did snore anything it will Mm, be there mm -hmm. so let's see yeah yeah yeah, and I was going to say in terms of the two detectives on the case, officer or yeah, 
yeah, I guess detectives, Officer mm-hmm. Janos and Officer Cronin. Um, one thing about Connecticut is that um, there is the Freedom mm-hmm. of Information Act where certain yeah. records are public, but there is some records yeah. that are exempt there. So what I really wanted to get at was, okay, oh, what's yeah. their background? Uh, do is Is there public access to what type of investigations they were working on at the same time as Lauren Smith's Fields case, just to get a bigger picture of like why this mm. went so sour, uh, not sour, but why this was so neglected. Same with Brenda Lee Rawls case. Right. So that's why I was like, you know, right. were they so inundated totally. with us, you know, crimes or homicides that they just fucking quote unquote, yeah. you know, drop the ball. But unfortunately, some law enforcement records uh, are exempt under the Freedom of Information mm-hmm. Act in Connecticut. So I'm like, yeah. that's where you're stuck. Like the then as a public, then we then we <laughs> yeah. do speculate. And then this is me going back to promoting community community review boards. The cool thing about community review boards is that if they're given certain powers, then they can mm-hmm. correct that. They can make things. They can uh, advise and or tell the law enforcement agency that they're over overseeing you need to be more transparent about these records or whatever and then like then as a whole you wouldn't have tensions between Mm -hmm. the media and law enforcement (laughs) and yeah just i don't have (laughs) anything else to to share on this i don't know if megan does Mm -hmm. nothing further i yeah, I'm just going to stay tuned and see what else comes of this. I'd love to know. I'm very curious as to how yeah. Brenda Lee Rawls uh, passed away. I, I don't know if we talked about the specifics about Mm-mm. what happened with her case, but what was weird is that she went and met an acquaintance. She didn't get back to her family for two days, and that's when they came searching. And then the only thing that they had they meaning like the i think it was the acquaintance fact check me on that poison i'm sorry poison pals like let me know i think it was the acquaintance that was like oh her body's already been picked up or something and but here's her clothes and shoes like that was the only thing that her family got back and they were like she's or she i don't know yeah right or who i yeah like again fact check me i don't know who gave but but that's what stood out to me is that the only thing that they collected before even seeing her body was the clothes and shoes and then uh, her mom you know says something extremely tragic or her sister says something extremely tragic that's like the next time we saw her she was already in the funeral home mm, my god yeah horrible uh, yeah uh this so, whole anyways episode is heavy guys so thanks for sticking mm-hmm. through it with us but Again, this is such an important story. It's just one of many, obviously, but I'm glad we were able to cover it. And I just really quick want to say, I mentioned her at the top of the episode, but underscore Lenizi from Parking Lot Pimpin', she is Mm. actually up for NAACP award. Um, She is nominated, so Mm. please go vote for her if you get a chance. We'll tag her socials on the show notes shall we do <laughs> we need antidotes yes we do antidotes okay yeah yeah i will go first my antidote is that i had the <laughs> pleasure of hanging out with harini the other day 
I feel like my antidotes will be <laughs> like that for the next couple of episodes because Harini, as we've mentioned, is leaving the San Diego area for a year. Megan's like a year only. Um, then she the has day. to come and back. It's really sad. <laughs> I know. Better only be a year. But um, yeah, it's always, always mm. such a good ass yeah. time hanging out with my girl. We're just up to stupid um, shit. <laughs> we walked to get some food. I'm. I. It's. It's always a good time because you know what? We always make the best of not bad situations, <laughs> yeah. but uncomfortable situations. And basically. Oh, yeah. It was a beautiful day in San Diego, but it there was no cloud cover or tree cover or shade. And I'm chuckling because we walked for maybe like, mm. I mm. don't know, 0.8 miles. So not a long walk just to like look for food and to like sit down at a restaurant or whatever. But man, we were walking <laughs> we straight really into were. the sun. I swear to God, we were just faces, no. no hats, no sunglasses, just faces directly hit by the sun. And I think we, <laughs> we were walked straight really dehydrated. Got our food, ordered <laughs> alcohol on top of that, sat down, and then we both looked at each other yeah. and we're like, wow, my hand's kind of shaking. <laughs> like, I'm lifting my taco. I'm like, this is too much effort. <laughs> Megan, I'm just going to sit here. And then Megan's like talking. And I'm like, Megan, I, I, can't, I don't know if I can respond. I right felt. Now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I, uh, I know that we were just both like <laughs> so bizarrely exhausted. But part of me was like, I think it's because we just spent 15 minutes like yeah, with the sun yeah. directly and, on our face. We were so chipper on the way there. It was just as soon as we sat down, it like hit us. We we're like, oh boy. And we we're, we're, Megan was so kind. She was just like, you know, because we got the food for there, like to sit there and eat. And then Megan mm -hmm. was so kind. She's like, you know, like if this is yeah. too much, we can definitely just pack it up and go home. And I'm like, okay, like let's give it a few moments. And literally like yeah. a minute later, I was like, Megan, I think we have to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and so we did. And then on the way back, Megan was just like, we're almost there. Yeah. Don't worry. Just one more block, two more blocks. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I know. I was just trying to be encouraging. But yeah, that was like, I just love that we were very simultaneously feeling this like, um, uh, not heat stroke, but like just this like yeah. wonky dehydration we situation. About it was the funny. whole time we were just yeah. giggling, giggles McGee yeah. about how we were so brave. Like who the heck yeah. are we? Who we're not the kind of people that go out and adventure. I was like, <laughs> we sit at home. <laughs> oh my god, no. I know. But we had a good time. I know. This is true. This is. We did have a good time. This is true. Honestly, every time Harini and I hang out, it's typically getting some yeah. food to go and or yeah. like Harini comes with food to my place or I already have food ready. We typically do not food oriented outside, outside. We just sit. We sit and eat our food and we watch yeah. TV and we chit chat and it's great. But this yeah, time so we're nice like, out. let's be adventurous. And I think Harini <laughs> said something like the audacity of us. Like we can't just to try to do something different now. <laughs> but it's just funny because we we said this before, like we'll sit and eat something yeah. and then we'll put on a show that we like both enjoy. And then as soon as the show comes on, yeah. we both turn to each other and we yeah. talk over it. <laughs> like that's just that's just what we do. And we're just laughing <laughs> yeah, and laughing and laughing. Oh yeah. my God. We're too funny. And I think, I honestly think it's yeah. like it's absurdly adorable that every time we hang out, we are just each other's antidotes. 
It's true. I mean, no. that's what makes my yeah. uh, my just or, always yeah. warms my heart. Yeah. Like Megan's the kind of person that I know I can yeah. literally be the dumbest person around <laughs> and not feel judged whatsoever. <laughs> and I also feel so comfortable to just like oh yeah be honest with her if i'm like not feeling something or i am feeling something i can be equally as excited or equally unexcited about something she's like cool (laughs) absolutely Um, okay yeah i do have a real antidote though uh that was that was definitely like my antidote like (laughs) but this is more like a Mm -hmm. recommendation for a show poison pals that you guys might be interested Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. it's a i it's like one of those things where I watched it back in 2020 when it came out and then very European of them. They just don't release anything for like two years. Um, so I just found out that the season two has mm, dropped on mm-hmm. HBO Max. I'm so excited. Uh, so it's called Foreigners. I don't know if I told you about this, Megan, but essentially the premise oh. of Foreigners, it is set in Norway. So if you guys don't like reading subtitles, maybe the show's not for you, but um, it is a Nordic drama, mm. I suppose, and <laughs> it's really cool concept. It's set in present day Norway, and all of a sudden, people from different timelines are popping up in the ocean. And by different timelines, I mean people from the Viking era, people mm. from 19th century are popping up in the ocean. So they are from before, but they're foreigners, hence the foreigners. And it's a really interesting concept mm-hmm. and premise of if people, if that were ever to happen, like if people timeline jumped from the past to our present day, how would we realistically as, mm-hmm. a, as a society welcome them in and integrate them into our community? So that is how, that is like what the show is about mm. to an extent. But what it really is about is it follows two, de- de- mm-hmm. two detectives who are solving crimes like one crime throughout the whole sh- like s- season and the first one is a present day nor mm-hmm. uh, norwegian detective this guy and his partner is a female detective from the viking era and she's so badass it's so dope so they're like these mm-hmm. two mishmash peas in a pod <laughs> that are like solving crimes together and then the second the second season yeah. without giving too much away it's just a cool concept of um, people from the eight, the 19th mm. century have time travel to the future. And just as you know, like there are serial killers mm-hmm. who can also time travel. So there's a very famous mm-hmm. serial killer from 18 or 19th century London who time travels to the future and starts doing his same killings, but in present day. And they're trying to like track him down. Mm-hmm. Just fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's really good. That sounds so dope. Out of everything you said, I think my biggest question is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, obviously this is all fiction, obviously, but like, what does <laughs> Viking era detective skills yeah. even look like? Like historically, like tr- like really right. historically, if a Vikings community, if a Viking community felt that there was an mm-hmm. injustice or like a murder or whatever. I would be so curious to know what they actually did Mm -hmm. to resolve that. And this is a total (laughs) stereotype based on what media has fed me in terms of Viking lore. But part of me is like, I feel like they wouldn't (laughs) do any detective stuff. They would just be like, this is the group of people we suspect. And (laughs) you're all going to jump to Odin or something or like jump to a god and kill yourself. 
but I it that sounds like a so good show and it's it's like <laughs> it's really funny and interesting and just all the things and the the Viking characters are so badass yeah. <laughs> it's such a cool show okay yeah so that is my shameless plug for a show I have nothing to do I with uh but before Orders is awesome on HBO Max <laughs> Right on, right on. The Foreigners. Honestly, when you first said the title of the show, I wasn't sure if I caught it right. I was like, did she just say The, the <laughs> yeah. Foreigners or The Foreigners? And so I just assumed you said Foreigners, and then you like doubled down on Be That's Foreigners. Cool name, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, I like it. That's cool. <laughs> okay, this episode is yeah, very is. long, so we will end it here. Uh, thanks again for listening, guys. Um, as always, mm-hmm. please rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. You can now rate on Spotify, which is cool. So all the people who are Android people, go ahead and do that. Uh, until next time, guys. I'm. I don't know if I'm gonna do a risk it. Yeah, I. I'm just not don't. gonna risk it. I'm gonna <laughs> play it safe today. Yeah. So we'll just no risking to be. Yeah, yeah. We'll see you next time, boys and pals. Goodbye. All right.